This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's community access radio station Plains FM 96.9 and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. and welcome to Dogs of New Brighton. I'm Michelle Hollis. My co-host is Jess Dog, and this is our Alert Level 3 episode with guest Dr Saab Johal. We talked just after New Zealand had entered Level 3. That's uh, six days ago now. A bit of background. I first met Saab when we were both working at Massey University in Wellington. Saab's a psychologist and a dog owner. But his professional interest is very relevant for this time of COVID. So I've been a psychologist with uh, about 30 years worth of experience now. Uh, Clinical psychologist, finished in 2003, which means I've been a clinician for about 17 years. Uh, I worked in emergency management since 2006 when we were doing the H5N1 preparatory work uh, for a pandemic in New Zealand then. Uh, And since then, I've worked across policy, clinical work and research. I led the writing of the UK Pandemic Influenza Preparedness Strategy uh, and then was back in New Zealand once the 2010-2011 Canterbury earthquake sequence was happening. Um, And so when I met you, I was Associate Professor in Disaster Mental Health at the Joint Centre for Disaster Research in Massey, based in Wellington. And I did that from 2011 to 2018. And then I took a bit of a step back for a while and was um, stay-at-home dad for much of the time since then. Uh, but I've been really busy this year, uh, including um, making and producing daily wellbeing videos, lots of media work, and lots of strategic communications advisory work in the response and uh, preparing for recovery from COVID-19. That's it in a summary nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a busy life. You also have a dog. Yes, we do. We do have a, a dog. We have a dog called Benji. And he's a Malshi, a Maltese Shih Tzu cross. And he is seven years old. And I adopted him when he was two years old. Uh, He had an owner who unfortunately died uh, of cancer related illnesses. Uh, And the surviving partner who was based actually in Taranaki, uh, which you can see from the mountain, which you won't be able to see on on the podcast, but this is my backdrop today on Zoom. couldn't, couldn't cope with, uh, with him. He was a driver, and so I needed to be out a lot of the time. So uh, I went to go and meet Benji. I'd never had a dog before. I'd always wanted a dog. And I'd done my research, and we, at that time we had uh, one child who was uh, three, coming on to four years old. Uh, and I'd done all the research around what mulchies were like in terms of temperament, what they were likely to be like, how much exercise they needed, what they were like with kids and all that kind of stuff. And I went to go and meet Benji and he tried to get in the car with me when I left. I subsequently discovered that he tries that with everyone. But at the time, <laughs> I thought it was just me. <laughs> so yeah, he's, he's a lovely dog. He's very loving. He does typical mulchie things. If anybody's got one, he sorts his toys. Uh, if anybody uh, moves his toys, he, he fetches them and then he distributes them around the place so that he has easy access to a toy no matter where he is in, in the bits of the house that he likes to be in. Um, I swear he's half Labrador, trapped inside. Um, he's very, very food driven. 
Um, and he is at the moment a bit of a mini Muffin McClay. Um, he's desperately in need of a haircut. As, as am I desperately <laughs> in need of a haircut. How has Benji been coping with um, the situation? He's, um, he's got an advantage in that he's, um, he doesn't need much walking. Uh, he's, um, he likes nothing better than sitting on the couch or playing fetch in the house. Um, so I take him out for a walk every morning for about 20 minutes, and that's pretty much what, what he does. But what I did notice that in the early days of level four, he did go through a bit of a needy patch because uh, we were all pretty busy with work and my um, partner was busy looking after the kids. Uh, and so trying to keep them occupied and also keep him occupied, he, I think he felt a little bit like, well, what's going on? This is a little bit strange. And I think maybe we'll come along to discuss this a little bit while is um, one of the things that I think we've been thinking about is actually how are our dogs coping with us being at home the whole time? Um, you know, actually us being at home all the time for a lot of dogs is like, it's a, it's a massive, massive treat for them. Um, and because they're very social animals, um, but they're also den animals, you know, dogs tend to spend a lot of the time napping and asleep. And if you're around the whole time and they're constantly like looking for stimulation because you're around and petting, then actually what's that feel like for them? And I was reminded when, um, when our second child was born, uh, Benji went through a phase of feeling very, very, looking very tired and very haggard and, and just not really being himself. And we went for the yearly checkup uh, with the vet. And I mentioned it to the vet and said, well, what do you think is going on? And he, she was very insightful. And she said, where's he sleeping? And uh, I said, well, his crate is kind of like out in the living room. Uh, um, we take the baby out in the middle of the night to feed him in the middle of the living room. Oh, and so yes. she said, oh, you might need to move his crate. Moved his crate. A few days later, he was back again, right as rain. So one of the things I think that we've really noticed is that making sure that he gets enough downtime away from us and actually able to sleep. Right. Well, Jess is lucky in that regard. Since there's only me at home during the day, she just follows the sun around and snoozes. It's very nice. So I wanted to ask you specifically about how you think this whole COVID-19 thing will roll for people in Christchurch. Mm. Um, are there things we might have learnt that could help? Yeah, yeah. So maybe I'll just start off kind of like broadly and then I'll, I'll come, mm. to, I'll zoom into that because I think it would be good context. So I think we've done really well as a nation so far um, in terms of how we've coped with the last four to five weeks. Uh, and it, it's interesting because I think a lot of people have been able to set a rhythm. Uh, and actually a lot of people's uncertainty and um, apprehension is around breaking that rhythm and what that's going to feel like and what it's going to mean for the country going forwards. Because I think also there's a lot of people that have assumptions that in about two weeks time, we're going to go back to normal. Uh, and I, that reminds me a little bit about what was happening around about Canterbury after the, the February quake. And once we got a few months out of that, then, um, people were kind of like assuming that actually things would get back to normal fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. And what we saw was that actually that was not going to happen. 
No. From the start off, we had big, big aftershocks that were insurance events in themselves, as well as being pretty scary things to go through. I remember being on the phone to someone going through a quake of one of the really, really big aftershocks at the time. All I could hear was smashing glass. But then we had the EQC and insurance quagmire that many, many people got caught up in. Uh, and two years later, we had a whole bunch of people coming in and asking for help. Because the interesting thing is that actually people put themselves to the back of the queue because they thought actually lots of people need this help more than I do right now. And then they started coming forward once they felt like those people maybe have got the help that they need. So I think that life warps around us. Life changes and it continues on. And I'm also reminded about what happens when people who emigrate go back to the land of where it is that they grew up and they find that it's changed and they don't feel like they belong anymore. But then they also feel like, hang on a second, what's my place in the world where I am? And I think that we may have a little bit of that to come. Um, a little bit of this future that we're going into is really, really uncertain. And it's probably gonna look quite different for a lot of people. And we may feel like we're trying to find our place in that for a while. New Zealand is probably going to be quite lucky, fingers crossed, touch wood, and we get through this period okay and we do the things that we're supposed to do because unlike other places in the world, we probably won't have a second wave. We may have cluster little outbreaks that come up and down, but we won't have enough of the virus in the community to cause a huge big second wave if we do this right, if we can do this right. So I think that actually we may feel a bit like an outlier compared to the rest of the world the things that we'll be de dealing with may be quite different to everybody else. And I think that relating that to then the Canterbury experience and, and people, you know, in the Eastern suburbs and in the, in the Southern suburbs of, of Christchurch and Canterbury widely is that actually in the first few days of the lockdown, I saw a few people on Twitter writing things like how they were reminded of early days post February 11, uh, 2011 and how they seem to be able to draw from that experience. So they felt like they already had a bit of a skill set that related to being able to cope with this situation. And then I think as we transition into recovery, I think then also people will perhaps be able to draw upon actually tempering their expectations a little bit and saying, actually, you know, we would like it to go like this and clockwork and fast forward into this new future where we're supposed to be brilliant and finding and innovating, but actually things don't necessarily un unroll that simply and that smoothly, and there will be hiccups along the way. So um, that's an unfortunate experience for people in Canterbury to, to have gone through over the last nine years. But I think actually, perversely, it's kind of gonna prepare you quite well for what's gonna come uh, in the future, because I don't think it's gonna be simple. Um, and I don't think it's going to be easy to, to see what's going to be coming up next either. You know, for me, um, in this, uh, at various points, I've been very optimistic that um, maybe uh, our community can be stronger because of this. And then other times, not so much. Yesterday, for instance, it mm. felt like a real shock. So first day... Um, in level three, there was a lot more traffic. I loved seeing the surfers, but it felt to me like the traffic was going so fast and it was back to some of the things that I didn't like so much. Uh, 
And that might have just, I guess that maybe that was just my perception. Maybe people weren't driving fast. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I feel personally like uh, Christchurch has still not really got it together. We missed a huge number of opportunities. And I worry that we'll miss them again. Is there anything psychologically that might move that towards us kind of retaining you know, that sense of community that we saw post-quake and then it kind of dissipated and people just got ratty. And... Yeah. I mean, yes, you're right. It, it did happen. And, and I think that what you experienced yesterday is partly, partly around, uh, yes, people may have returned to kind of like old behaviours, but partly our norms have been reset a little bit over the last few weeks. And so actually we've got used to something that is really, really quite different. So as it starts to ramp up again, because of the disparity and the difference that we're experiencing, we think that actually that's super duper fast. It's like when you um, suddenly slow down uh, on a motorway and then you look over and you, maybe your partner's driving and you kind of like, you look over just over their shoulder to see what speed you're actually doing because you think you're going really, really slowly or you're really, really going fast. You just need to kind of like double check because you've experienced the difference. You're like, well, I've lost my radar a little bit on this. And so similarly, I think that people have lost their radar a little bit around what normal looks like. Now, there's a really interesting opportunity there then, right? Because then we get to define that. We get to say, what do we want our normal, our lives in the future to look like? And the way I've been talking about this with some other people is like, this is like a big discontinuity. It's like a big break in our development as a community, our development as a nation, where our place is in the world. And I would urge people to really hold on to that and to come together as communities and to say, actually, we quite like bits of this and our coming together. How do we keep those bits alive and make sure we claim some of that agency back? So, because I think co-determination is gonna become a really big thing over the next wee, wee while. Who gets to have a say as to what the future is going to look like? So I would say there's a really, really big place for advocacy and, and rattling the cage a bit here and saying, actually, you don't do this without us having a say in this. Because I think that people are prepared to listen. They're prepared to listen and they're looking for ideas. So this is a really, really good opportunity to start shaping those ideas. You know, maybe your idea, the one that you've got in your mind, whoever's listening right now may not be the one that gets taken forward, but it may get shaped. It may get morphed into something that's going to fit with a whole bigger group of people that want to push that forward. So I'd say, yeah, get those ideas out there now. This is a good opportunity. Who came out of the Christchurch earthquakes better? Um, I don't mean in terms of money, in terms of mental well-being. Who came out better off and, and um, how can we replicate that here? Yeah, I don't think there's an easy answer to that question in terms of who, who came better off. I think we, we know more about the people who struggled right. and the people who continue to struggle. But I think the hallmarks of people who, who can not just survive, I think thrive is, um, I don't know if thrive is the right word, but get through and be able to move to a different and better place might be a, might be a different way of framing it. I think there's a couple of things that um, 
that may mark those that those, that group of people one is uh, the idea of a commitment to a purpose so not being driven by the small events that happen that may derail you but being able to keep your eye on the bigger picture in terms of what you want your life to be about what you want your community's life to be about what it is that you would like to contribute as well as receive in a in a bigger world and then the other thing i think is probably psychological flexibility so this is the idea of being able to pivot and when the situation changes that you don't hold on too tightly to the thing that you really really want to do because it may not be possible or it may become really really difficult for you to do so it's the balance between that commitment to a purpose but also being able to understand that sometimes you may need to let some things go in order to get to the other place that fits in the bigger picture and unfortunately the thing that stress does the things the thing that you know when we're under pressure in life is that it can make us quite rigid and it can make us to hold quite tightly to things that don't make a whole lot of sense for us to be able to do right now because it might be it might serve you in the short term but in the medium and long term perhaps it, it may not do so well so being able to take a bit of a unblinkered view which means that actually what you need to do is to work on your well-being because when you work on your well-being then you're able to see the bigger picture rather than just trying to deal with the stress and what's what's right in front of you and one of the biggest things that helps with your well-being is connectedness connectedness not just to others but also your environment your pets your animals all the sorts of things that are going on around you so you can see how it's all linked and that's why a lot of the public health messages are around about you know the five ways to well-being because we know that actually it enables you then to see other things in the world and helps you then to be able to navigate more wisely in the changed environment that you might find yourself in so the five ways to well-being are connectedness, yep. giving, yep. Uh, yeah. <laughs> learning, learning. Yeah. Uh, noticing. Noticing. Is that yeah. the nature one? Getting out yeah. into nature. Yeah, so that's things yep. like, you know, being out in nature or noticing, you know, what's going on with your pets and how they're trying to communicate with you and you communicate with them, all those different things. Uh, and, what's and the last one is exercise. Is it exercise? That's right. Getting out. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because we know that, you know, just really simply from a physiological point of view, you know, when you've got a whole load of stress hormones or you're thinking about something that's quite difficult, when you walk, you know, fast rhythmic walking um, can actually help to process a lot of those stress hormones. So yesterday I did something that I was finding not stressful, but I was really elevated and up for. And immediately after I finished it, I kind of like sent a couple of emails and went out for a walk immediately because I know that that's the thing that's going to get my physically and mentally into a different place. So um, we kind of know from the research after the Christchurch earthquakes that actually it's the life events immediately afterwards that can be difficult. Mm. And I have to say I'm worried for myself to some extent, also for others, about the precarious financial situation and employment situation that we're in. Um, any observations there just to finish off? Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, all the evidence internationally and in New Zealand uh, points to the fact that it's the secondary stresses that have the biggest impact. So yes, there is fear of the, the virus, there's fear of earthquakes, there's fear of all kinds of hazards that we, we come across. So when they take place in our lives, that, that takes primacy for a while. But then it's the 
what we call the problems of living that get in the way. Uh, and they're the things that we struggle with because in a changed environment, you know, people who already perhaps had precarious living circumstances, they were kind of scraping on a week to week basis to pay the rent, to, to buy the food, to get their kids the clothes, to go to school. All of that stuff was already difficult. Uh, and so as we go forwards into this future, then all of that stuff starts to raise its head again. So yes, you may have been able to get grants. You may have been able to, if you own a business, um, apply for the, the help in order to pay, pay your employees for a, a small amount of time. But then you're going to be thinking about, well, what's that going to look like for me in level two? What's that going to look like for me when the wage subsidy ends in the middle of June? You know, all of these things then start to come up. And, you know, I can... I can assure you that lots and lots of people are thinking about this really, really hard right now and, and trying to plan steps to assist everyone to get through this. But it's going to be different for everyone. Some businesses are not going to do so well. Some opportunities are going to come up that weren't there before. You can see how everyone is really thinking very hard about how we communicate with each other right now. And I'm sure that communication and opportunities around how we come together, that's going to be something that's going to really take off, not just here, but around the world. So there's going to be a big market in that. But I think you're right. I think for people who are have precarious lives, what we know is that inequalities widen after disasters, new inequalities emerge. And what we need to do is to really keep an eye on those, address those inequalities that already exist, continue to do that, but keeping a really close eye on any inequalities then that start to emerge that we didn't know of before. I'm concerned about like things like a digital divide and really make sure that they don't become entrenched uh, as we move forward. So for us in New Brighton, maybe hopefully by mid-June, we'll actually be able to stop and talk to each other as we walk our dogs along the beach. And even those little things could help. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, last time I checked, uh, level two uh, is still one metre distancing, but it's a lot easier for us to be able to just pause and just, and, and just have that connection in real life and face-to-face. Um, but I think it's important to say that, you know, level two is going to look a little bit more like what the normal life looked like beforehand, but it won't be quite there yet until we get to, you know, level one. And that could be a wee while yet uh, as we set up society um, so that we can understand where the touch points might be that may be a little bit more dangerous and manage those well. Uh, so I'm not trying to be pessimistic. I am just trying to give people a little bit of reality check of, Yep, things are going to feel more normal, but not as normal. And we may have to re-gauge what normal looks like. Thanks, Saab. And thank you for spending time with us. You can hear more Dogs of New Brighton on Plains FM. Just go to plainsfm.org.nz for details. We're online on Apple Podcasts. And you can check out www.dogsofnewbrighton.org for back episodes. In the meantime, kaki te anō, we'll see you on the beach. <laughs>